Well, good evening. It's great to see you all again this evening. And uh, like Pastor mentioned, we are on our final two weeks of equipping classes of systematic theology. And um, we've covered a lot of territory so far, and it's been, it's been good. Uh, we've covered bibliology, tackled topics such as uh, the necessity of Scripture, inspiration, inerrancy of Scripture. Um, we've, we are on the doctrine of God now, theology proper. Um, and we have discussed the attributes of God, uh, the providence of God, and now this week we will be discussing the Trinity um, this week, and, and next week we'll be on the Trinity. Um, again, this is a, like providence and like attributes, is another massive uh, topic. We could spend weeks, we could do a whole equipping class on the Trinity, but we have two weeks, so we will do our best and uh, try to get through it. It's actually significant that we come to this doctrine of Trinity last in our, in our study, because it's a doctrine that really undergirds everything else that we have studied so far. Um, we've studied the, the being of God and His attributes, and we've studied His works of providence. But now we come to the Trinity in order to remind us that all that God is and all that God does, we should not think of Him as a singular being or some abstract notion of God, but as one God in three persons. In other words, every work of God is Trinitarian. And every attribute of God belongs not to some general concept of God out there, but to each person, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, equally. I think we're often tempted to think of this doctrine of the the Trinity only when we must. Uh, We don't normally think of, or we normally think of God in in general terms. We don't normally think of Him as as a Trinity. Um, Our default concept of God and of God's works often tend to be Unitarian, even though we would never say that, as though God is just this singular being up there. We don't naturally think of him as a tri-unity. So, for example, when we think of God's providence, we are much more prone to think of God, this idea just as being God, doing this or that, rather than thinking of him as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together in perfect unity and harmony and delight in one another such that God's purpose as a tri-unity is fulfilled in his works of providence. Um, And the same is true of anything else we have studied of about God. So it's just not how we naturally think of of God. Or when you commune with God or you pray to God, how conscious are you of the Trinity? Do you pray simply to God? God, so his abstract notion of a God up there, or do you hold intentional fellowship with each, the Father, and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit? Do you pray to the Father, dependent on the Son, with prayers directed by the Holy Spirit? 
Do you fellowship with the Father distinctly, and with the Son distinctly, and with the Spirit distinctly? Do you enjoy fellowship with the triune God? And you should. Let me show you some passages. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That's which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is Trinitarian. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, it's the God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, the Christian life is a life of intimate knowledge of the triune God. It's fellowship with the triune God. It is entrance into the very life and love of the triune God. That is what it means to be a Christian. Listen to this astounding verse in John 17. Jesus is praying, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and look at this, and loved them even as you loved me. The gospel is good news because one of the main gifts of the gospel is you are brought into the life and the fellowship and the love of the triune God. That's what it means to be a a Christian. So my point is this, the Trinity is not a doctrine that we should consult only here and there. It's not something that's largely irrelevant to the gospel or the Christian life. It's not an unfortunate, awkward doctrine that we just have to deal with to maintain orthodoxy. It's a precious doctrine. It ought to be at the heart of all of our thoughts about God. It's not something we should be ashamed of, but a truth about God that we should glory in. But I know that's not often how we think of it, right? I admit, it's difficult. It's largely a mystery. But my point here is to say that it's not mere theological jargon that doesn't really make a difference one way or the other. In fact, it's a truth about God which is gloriously essential to the gospel and to the entirety of your Christian life. I think a lot of us think it would be much easier to explain the gospel or to defend the faith if we didn't have this thing called the Trinity we have to deal with, right? So if you're like, eh, if God was just sort of this singular being, it would be a lot easier. Um, but my goal through these two lessons is that you would come away seeing that nothing could be further from the truth. That God is a Trinity is good news. That God is a Trinity is not something to be ashamed of. It is to be gloried in. And that is what we will aim at in our study. 
So why is it important? What is lost if we should lose it? And what real difference does it make after all? So that's what we will be aiming at um, in this study um, during these two weeks. This week, we will be investigating the basic elements of the Trinity. Just what do we mean by the Trinity? The basic elements. And then next week, we'll consider how the persons of the Trinity relate with one another. Um, How that shapes the very gospel that we believe. And how it ought to profoundly influence your life. So my goal is that we come away with a clearer knowledge of what the Trinity is and that we would not be ashamed of this doctrine. So, if that hasn't been enough, let me just begin with a few statements on the importance of this doctrine. Why is the Trinity important? Number one, it is important because it is what sets the true God apart from all false gods. So to John Calvin on this point, He says, for he, that's God, so proclaims himself the sole God as to offer himself to be contemplated, to be thought of clearly in three persons. Unless we grasp these, God in three persons, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. That's the point we made earlier. Unfortunately, that is often what happens to us. We just think of this bare idea of God flitting around in our brains. We don't consider Him as a triunity, how He wants to be known. It's what sets Him apart from all others. Number two, the Trinity is essential for the Gospel. And faith in it is essential for salvation. That's a strong statement. If you don't believe the Trinity, you will perish. Really? Is that important? Eternity hangs on the Trinity? The very truth of the Gospel hangs on the Trinity? It's a bold statement. And the answer is yes. Now let me clarify that a bit for you. I'm not saying that there's a knowledge exam that you have to pass in order to get into heaven. Um, It's not what we are saying. The point, rather, is that if we distort the being of God as a trinity, we will distort the very nature of the gospel. The very nature of the gospel hangs on his being as a trinity. It also doesn't mean that you have to be able to articulate this doctrine perfectly um, to be saved. If that was the case, uneducated, Illiterate and and young children could never be saved. That's not what we are saying. And we're also not saying that all true Christians have mastered their understanding of this doctrine. So who here has mastered their understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity? I don't think anyone, nor have I. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that you are growing in your knowledge of God. And this is where it's helpful to distinguish, as Pastor Farrell does often, between ignorance and rebellion. It's one thing to not clearly have this doctrine, or there to be things you don't know yet, or you're refining or growing in, and you're showed it from Scripture, and you embrace it. 
That's what Christians do. So we're not saying you have to have a perfect understanding of this. You're growing in it. But it is a different thing altogether when you are shown the truths of the Trinity and you know them and you reject and deny them. That's a different matter altogether. So it is essential for salvation. Number three, the Trinity is the fountainhead of the gospel and of all the delights which are to be found in God. Michael Reeves says this, It is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the Trinity were something we could shave off God, we would not be relieving Him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing Him of precisely what is so delightful about Him. For God is triune, and it is as triune that He is so good and desirable. So God's triunity is not just what sets Him apart from other gods, but it is because he is triune that he's so good that all of his goodness flows. In other words, this is good news that God is a trinity. So we will tackle a lot more of that next week um, as we flesh out some of these things. This week we're just going to tackle the elements. What do we mean by the trinity, the basic elements? Before we move on, any questions about any of that? The importance of this doctrine? Okay. Let's move on now. The basic elements of the Trinity are these. Number one, God is one. Number two, God is three. Number three, the three are God. God is one, God is three, the three are God. So let's take these one at a time. Number one, God is one, or you could say there is one and only one God. When we speak of the Trinity, we are not speaking about three separate gods. The Bible repeatedly affirms that there is but one true And living God, and besides Him, there is none else. It's affirmed in the Old Testament and New Testament. So let's look at the Old Testament affirmations. There's two aspects to this claim that God is one. What do we mean by that? He's one. First, it means that He's one in His exclusivity. That is to say, He and He alone is God, and there is none else. So Deuteronomy 6, the the Shema, this is the pillar of Judaism and of Christianity. Very essential element. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Think the idea there, it's saying the Lord is our God, Yahweh, I am who I am, is our God, and Yahweh alone, only He is our God. No others are the God of Israel. 
But he is to be theirs exclusively because of his identity as the only true God. So back in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, it says this, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Verse 39, Know therefore today and lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Because Yahweh alone is the true God and because He alone is Israel's covenant God, they are to respond to Him with exclusive allegiance. So back in chapter 6, because He is one, you are to be one in your love for Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength. So we could say this, to be devoted to another such that your devotion to Yahweh is minimized is the essence of idolatry. And that is a very significant point when we come to see that you owe exclusive allegiance to the Father and to the Son. Because this is saying there is only one God. A couple more affirmations just very quickly. Deuteronomy 39, I am He, and there is no God beside me. Isaiah 43, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, and there is no other. So God is one in His exclusivity, and He's also one in His uniqueness. So he's one, meaning he's the only God. Besides him, there's none else. And he's one in the sense that he is unique. He's set apart from all others. None can compare with him. None can even come close to being like him. He is unique. So, Exodus 8.10, speaking to Pharaoh. Tomorrow, be as, it say, as you say, so that you may know there is... No one like the Lord our God. Exodus 15, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Isaiah 44, Besides me there is no God. There's His exclusivity. Who is like me? There's His uniqueness. There is none like you, O Lord. Jeremiah 10, There is none like you. In other words, he has no legitimate competitors. He stands totally distinct in his nature from any others. So that is what we mean. God is, is one. His exclusivity and his uniqueness. Skip some of these here for the sake of time. So let me show you that this truth, really quickly, is not reserved to the Old Testament, but Jesus and the apostles affirm it repeatedly. Um, God is one. He's unique. No bearing sh being shares in his nature and can compare with him. And he is exclusive over, over all. Mark 12, Jesus affirms the, the Shema, what we read, Deuteronomy 6. Jesus quotes it, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John 40. 544, Jesus calls him the only God. John 17, 3, 
praying to the Father this eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is so significant about these two verses in John um, is that both of them come in a very highly Trinitarian text, as we'll, we'll see later, which highlight the absolute deity of Christ alongside the Father. But apparently neither Jesus nor John sees this as a contradiction to say that there's only one true God. I'll give you a couple more. Romans 3.30, God is one. And the same Lord is Lord over all. Paul is giving the basis for which salvation can be for Jews and Greeks alike, because there's one, one God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, faith in one true and living God is essential for salvation. Return from idols to serve the true and living God. So God is one. He's unique. There's none like Him in His nature. There's none besides Him. New Testament affirms it. Old Testament affirms it. Let's move on to the the next point here. He's not only one, but He's also three. Or you could say that this one God exists in three persons. Or, to use a big theological word, in three subsistences. Um, We're going to talk more of this terminology next week, but it's really a bit arbitrary which word you use because the Bible doesn't use any of these words. Uh, Person, subsistence, whatever you choose. The, The important thing is that we affirm that God's oneness, like we just saw, also includes His threeness. The point here is simply to explain that this one God is also a plurality. Okay, let's see. Let me give you some Old Testament allusions to plurality. Um, It's by no means clear or explicit in the Old Testament like it is in the New Testament. But having learned about the Trinity in the New Testament, um, these Old Testament allusions begin to to make sense. Um, So this is important to note because it tells us the New Testament does not contradict what the Old Testament teaches about God, but it adds detail to it. It clarifies its meaning. It builds upon what is there. So John Frame gives a very helpful quote from B.B. Warfield. I'll read it to you. It says, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament. But the mystery of the Trinity underlies the Old Testament revelation. And here and there, it almost comes into view. Old Testament revelation is not corrected by the fuller revelation which follows it. That is very important. But only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And that is due to the nature of progressive revelation. God did not reveal everything at the very beginning, did he? Um, He gave enough revelation that was necessary at the moment. So, Abraham did not know as much as Moses, and Moses didn't know as much as Isaiah, and Isaiah didn't know as much as Paul. Um, And there's a very important reason why His triune nature was not fully revealed in the Old Testament. And we're going to 
come to that in a, in a moment. But all that to say, we must be careful that, number one, we do not read back into Old Testament texts what the author did not intend. So that's caution one. We don't want to import New Testament theology back into the Old Testament. But number two, we should also understand these Old Testament texts as dim pointers to what would be fully revealed in the New Testament. The truth of the Trinity in the New Testament was not revealed in the Old Testament, but it does not contradict the teaching of the Old Testament. So let me show you why that is the case. There are some general allusions to plurality in the Old Testament. General allusions. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Genesis 3.22, after they eat the fruit, he says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. In Genesis 11.7, come, Tower of Babel, let us go down there and confuse their language. The common explanation of these verses is that God is just merely addressing his heavenly court, the angels. And he's not inviting them to join him, but he's announcing, as a king, let us go do something, and he's himself going to go, go do it. And that's a possible interpretation. But I think it seems like a stretch to apply in our image to angels, or like us, knowing good and evil to angels, because angels do not know good and evil like that, nor are we made in their image. So I think it seems that the, the best explanation here is that this is an indication that God is a unity of a plurality. But whatever that means, it's quite significant because Moses is obviously very insistent that there is one God. That's the whole point of the creation story. There's one God, and yet he does not shy away from using these kind of, this kind of language. Isaiah 6.8, another instance, God says, Whom shall I send and whom will go for, for us? So these are some general allusions to plurality in the Old Testament. Number two, there's also allusions to the person's of the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Old Testament. There are these beings that we encounter who we find out are distinct from God and yet they're equal with, with God. And again, I note that these are not sufficient for us to construct a theology of the Trinity or an understanding of the persons of the Godhead, but they are hints that we see. We see the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters as God's agent. It's a very interesting one. At the very end of Isaiah 63, it says that the people rebelled and grieved His, God's, Holy Spirit. Look at the very end. It says, where is He who put in the midst of them His Holy Spirit? That's an allusion to the indwelling presence of God in the temple. Holy Spirit 
is identified as distinct from God and yet possessing God's attributes, working on behalf of God, and indwelling the people with God's presence. We also encounter this figure called the angel of the Lord. He appears on earth on behalf of the Lord, but he's also identified as Yahweh. So Genesis 22, this is the scene sacrificing Isaac, the angel of the Lord called to him. And then he says at the end, For now I know that you fear God, for you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Identifies himself with God. Or Jacob in Genesis 31, the angel of God said to me, and what did he say? He said, I am the God of Bethel. Um, This character identifies himself with the Lord. We also encounter the Son of God, the Messiah. Um, the Son of God doesn't, it's not automatically a title of deity. The Davidic king was to be a son of God. It means he was to represent God's character. He was to mediate God's rule to the, to the earth. But when we come to texts about the Messiah, he's to be that kind of son of God, but in a much higher way than any before him. Psalm 45 says, Your throne, speaking of the Davidic king, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Psalm 110 is the one the Pharisees couldn't answer when Jesus asked them the meaning. Yahweh says to my Adonai, my sovereign Lord, talking about the Messiah. Or Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, and his name shall be called Mighty God. So we get it in the allusions to to the Messiah. All right? So we get allusions to the persons of the Godhead, and finally there are allusions to all three persons in the the Old Testament. Let me show you these very, very quickly. Psalm 33, 6. It says, by the word of the Lord, so there's the Lord, and there's his word, the heavens were made, and by the breath, the rock, same word for spirit, of his mouth, all their hosts, all three are present. Or, Isaiah 48, this might be the clearest in the Old Testament, draw near to me, hear this, from the beginning I have not spoken in secret, from the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God, Adonai Elohim, the sovereign God, has sent me and his spirit. From the context, that me is Yahweh speaking, and yet he's distinct from this Lord God and also the spirit. And there are many other texts that we could look at. So all of these are hints that the truth, that God in his singularity is also a, a plurality um, but if this is all we have, we would not be able to have a doctrine of the Trinity. We would be left with vague notions that, yes, there's one God and somehow there's a plurality. Um, that's all we could, could say. It's not explicit, nor could we deduce any kind of understanding of God as a Trinity from the Old Testament alone. John Frame makes this point. He said it would be difficult, if not impossible, to determine how many divine beings there are from the Old Testament alone. One might well ask if word, wisdom, name, glory, angel, Messiah, and spirit designate seven distinct divine beings. And if not, what relationships among them there are. 
So that's the dimly lit room of the Old Testament. Um, and that brings us to the, to the New Testament. New Testament affirmations of plurality. What was only hinted at in the Old Testament is now made explicitly clear in the New. Something happened in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption such that His being as as a trinity was made explicit. Now what in the world could that something be? What do you think? The incarnation of the Son of God and His cross. That's exactly right. The coming of Christ and His cross work revealed God to us in a way that had not been revealed prior. Christ's incarnation put God's being on maximum exposure. That's what John 1.18 says. The only begotten God, the Son, has fully explained Him. That is what took place in His incarnation. And part of that was His nature as a trinity. God in three persons. Now, God did not reveal this before Christ because it was not necessary to reveal it before Christ. But it was also not revealed before before Christ so that the glory of God being put on vivid display in the way that had never been before through the incarnation of the Son of God might be to the glory and honor and praise of Christ. That is why He waited until the incarnation. That's not all. The Trinity comes into clear focus in the New Testament, not only because of Christ's person, but because God's very nature as a Trinity gives shape to the Gospel message. All three are uniquely involved in the work of redemption. The ultimate gift of salvation is nothing less than participation in the eternal life and love of the triune God. That's how how we began So all of this to say is that the Trinity is not an isolated or insignificant doctrine in the New Testament. It's not something that the New Testament just occasionally refers to. It's the very fabric and the substance of the New Testament's teaching. Who Jesus is and what He accomplished and how God relates to believers is Trinitarian in everything in the New Testament. B.B. Warfield again says this, the whole book of the New Testament is Trinitarian to its core. All its teaching is built on the assumption that the Trinity and its allusions to the Trinity are frequent, cursory, easy, and confident. The doctrine of the Trinity, Trinity does not appear in the New Testament in the making, but as already made. So as we're about to examine many texts And there's a lot here. We will cover a few of them, which affirm the Trinity. I just want to state up front that this doctrine does not stand on a handful of proof texts. Um, It's implied everywhere in the New Testament. What's interesting is that there are actually very few texts that explicitly teach us about the Trinity in the New Testament. But many many, many texts which simply assume and declare its truth in passing, although it is a doctrine which is so fundamental to the New Testament that it's simply affirmed 
and assumed to be the case. So let me show you a number of these texts in which all three are present. And obviously we don't have time to go through all of them, and there's a lot. Nor do we have time to go through texts in which two of them are present, the Father and the Son, or the Son and the Spirit. And there is a lot of those. We will just look at a couple here very quickly. Look at this first one here. Very important one. Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's something very significant here. That word, name, that is in the singular, not in the plural. It does not say in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit, but in the name. It is God's name. It points us back to what Pastor Farrell was teaching us this morning, the name of God in the Old Testament. I am who I am. It is God and His being and His character, the only God, His name. But this one name belongs to the Father, and it belongs to the Son, and it belongs to the Spirit. This name includes three, and the three possess this name. In other words, this singular name tells us there's only one God, but the equal possession of this name by the Father, Son, and Spirit tells us that these three are equal with one another, and yet distinct from one another. We'll flesh that out more next week. show you a few more. His baptism... Jesus baptized. The Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove and the voice of the Father from heaven. John 3.34 For He, the Son, whom God has sent, utters the words of God. For He, the Father, gives to the Son the Spirit without measure. John 15 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. 2.33, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, whom Christ has poured out. 1 Corinthians 6, Lord Jesus Christ, but the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 12.4, there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Variety of services, but the same Lord. And there's a variety of activities, and it is the same God who empowers them all. Now, a text like this, sometimes people respond to by thinking, ah, why does Paul say it like that? It sounds like Christ is a bit less God, right? Why does he distinguish the Lord from, from God? But at almost all the cases where Christ and the Father are put together, the word theos, God, is always attributed to the Father. Not to take deity away from Christ, but in order to imply a distinction between the Father and the, and the Son. And that's what Paul is doing here. In fact, the word, word Lord, kurios, is just as significant a divine name as theos, God. Um, but I think this is a very interesting example here. Why even bring this up, Paul? Why make things so confusing? I think it's because the Trinity, Paul sees it as underlying all the activities in the church. Everything in the Christian life is Trinitarian. It's coming out in Paul's theology. 
We can go to many more here. Ephesians, through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. And we could go to, to many more. So, those are two basic elements of the Trinity. God is one. And God is three. But now we come to a very important third Third point, and that is to say that the three are God. Each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not part God. They are fully God. Remember, the name applies totally to each one. Father, Son, and Spirit. And we're not going to spend time defending the deity of the Father because everybody assumes the deity of the Father. But it's the deity of the Son and the Spirit that are often brought into into question. Does the New Testament identify Jesus Christ as God? And if so, how does it do that? And that Jesus is God, just like the Trinity, is assumed everywhere in the New Testament. It's actually hard to find a place in your Bible that does not assume this um, explicitly or implicitly. So let me give you some ways in which the, the New Testament identifies Jesus as a God. And I have a lot, and I have a lot of texts, and we're not going to go through all of them. I gave you the outline just as a resource, even for you to use, consult, and meditate on. But I will do a survey really quickly. How does the New Testament identify Jesus as God? First, the nature of Jesus' words and, and actions are fitting only for God. Jesus makes God-like demands concerning himself all over the place in the Bible. For example, Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Can you imagine a mere man saying such things? Um, he is putting himself up on the level of God in Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord with all your heart. Exclusive devotion. It would be blasphemy were he not God. He makes God-like claims about himself. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. It's context. It's an allusion back to the pillar of fire in the Exodus. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light which gives life, is the idea. Can you imagine a mere mortal saying such things? And he determines who, who enters the, the kingdom. Matthew 7. So the nature of Jesus' words and actions are fitting only for God. That's one way. Another way is the New Testament regularly applies Old Testament passages about Yahweh to to Jesus. And I think this is one of the strongest ways the New Testament affirms the deity of Christ. I'll show you some of these. John 12, I just preached this a few weeks ago. Wonderful passage. So rich. He quotes Isaiah 6 about the unbelief of the people, saying, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts in judgment. And then John says that he said these things because he saw. His glory and spoke of him. Well, in the context of John, that his can only be one person. 
It is Jesus. That is the nearest reference in John 12. Isaiah, John says Isaiah saw his glory, Jesus Christ's glory. But in Isaiah 6.1, we read that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, the Lord, the sovereign God, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up in his glory. That's how the New Testament affirms the deity of Christ. Another one, Philippians 2. God has highly exalted Christ and given Him the name. There's the name. It's above every name. So that, that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess. What's the name? The name is this. Jesus Christ is Kurios. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that is a quotation from Isaiah 45. Speaking of Yahweh God, to me every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear allegiance. And there are many more that we could point out. Next, Jesus claims to be the I Am. So turn with me to John chapter 8. We haven't turned in our Bibles. Let's, let's do that. John 8. He claims to be the I Am. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, that's how it literally reads, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That sounds awkward in English, and it actually sounded awkward to them, because look how they respond. They said to him, who are you? What what do you mean by that? Look down in verse 28. He says it again, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. That I do nothing on my own authority. And then he makes it crystal clear in verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, ego me, I am. These are clear allusions back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 41, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I, Yahweh, the word Yahweh, I am. The first and the last, I am. I am He. I, I am Yahweh. God said to Moses in Exodus 3, I am who I am. He's the self-existent God. That's what Jesus claimed deity of Christ. It's also affirmed in his attributes. Divine attributes are attributed to Jesus. We won't go through these. I'll just list them off. His perfect knowledge of the heart. Many texts on that. Sinlessness. Omnipresence. The Great Commission. I'm with you always, even in the end of the age. Omnipotence. We will look at that one next week. Preexistence and eternal. Jesus possesses the divine attributes that only God possesses. Divine rights are also attributed to Jesus. Remember Deuteronomy 6, because God is one, you must have exclusive allegiance to him, and yet you must give exclusive allegiance to Jesus. Like worship, and equal honor with the Father, and trust. 
If Jesus were not God, any of those demands would be blasphemous and idolatrous. Number six, divine acts are performed by Jesus. He forgives sins as only God can do. He's sovereign over the sea. He calms the winds and the waves. He's the creator of all things. And he raises the dead on the last day. And finally, if that were not enough, there's explicit statements that Jesus is God. Man, we could spend a lot of time here. Um, Go to John. We're in John. Go over to chapter 1. We have a few minutes left. We'll try to look at some of these and then tackle the Spirit and be be done. John 1.1. John opens his gospel with what is perhaps the most precise, accurate descriptions of the Trinity that John could have constructed in Greek to begin his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Meaning with God the Father. Pre-existent, intimate relationship with God the Father. And the Word was God. We're going to come back to that next week when we talk about the relationships of the Trinity, but I just want to note how strong this expression is. Um, He's distinct from the Father, and yet he is also God in all that it means to be God. Um, you cannot translate this, he was a God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses like to do. You have to really stretch the Greek here, and the context makes it clear um, that that is a very improbable translation. But then, when you come to read the rest of the Gospel of John, you find out that John indeed, means the Word was not a God. He was God and all that it means to be God. And yet he is distinct from the Father. So that's an explicit statement. Go over to verse 18. John 1, 1, now John 1, 18. The very end of the prologue. So he begins it and he ends it with statements of the deity of Christ. No one has ever seen God. That's an Old Testament truth. You can't look on God and live. But the only begotten God. Your translation might say the only begot, the only Son. There's a textual variant there. The, the best manuscripts are the only begotten God. Another word, theos, God, attributed to the only begotten Son, who's at the Father's side, that intimate relationship again. Man, there's many texts. Go over to Titus. Look one more. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13 says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, And that these are not separate identities is very clear. If you know Greek, the way the construction is put together, um, it, Jesus Christ is modified by God and Savior. It has to be. And there are a number of other texts which do that as well. A very clear reference that Jesus is God. Um, but after all we've seen in the New Testament, you don't need these handful of texts that say Jesus is theos to know that. But they are explicit, strong statements that he is just as much God as the Father. 
Okay, we have three minutes to get the Holy Spirit. Um, let's try to do that. The deity of the, of the Spirit. Um, God is one, God is three, and the three are God. That includes the, the Holy Spirit. And much of the way we defended the deity of the Son, we'll defend the deity of the, of the Spirit as well. There's Old Testament texts about Yahweh that are applied to the Spirit. One of them, Hebrews, says the Holy Spirit bears witness, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, where Yahweh bore witness. Holy Spirit possesses divine attributes. Think of Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your Spirit? You're everywhere. If I go to the heights above or to shale beneath, you, you are there. He's omnipresent. He's eternal, and he is omniscient. He possesses divine attributes. Number three, very clear way, the Spirit is identified as God, is that to lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. Um, Very clear text in Acts 5 is Ananias and, and Sapphira. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Look at how he ends it. You have not lied to man, but to God. Another explicit reference, the Holy Spirit is to be identified with God. There's a lot more we could say on, on all of them. So from the New Testament, we learn that the Father is fully God, and the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. And it is also consistently declared that there is but only one true and living God, and that to worship any besides Him is idolatry. There are not three separate gods. The one God exists as three persons who are each fully God. And uh, there's much more we could, we could say there. Let me show you this text again, this quote from John Frame. puts it this way. He says, All three stand together as Creator and Savior. Scripture joins them together in contexts of praise and thanksgiving. They are the ultimate object of the believer's trust and hope. What else can they possibly be other than one somehow threefold? And it's a mystery beyond that. We'll talk next week about the relationships between them. What do we mean the Son is begotten from the Father? Why is it that one is identified as the Father, one is identified as the Son, and one is the Spirit? And have they always been that way? How do they relate with one another? Um, And how's that changed the gospel? How's the gospel shaped by it? How ought it to affect your lives tomorrow? We will unpack some of the things we began with, and then we'll take a look at some nice juicy heresies that uh, got into some of the uh, errors in the Trinity. So it is 6.15. Any quick questions, comments before we close? We're in deep waters, I know, but we're good waters. Okay.
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. How glorious you are. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son. Lord, there's none like you, and you invite us to know you, to press on to know you as our God. Oh, that we would know the sweetness of your being. You're the Father, the source of all things. You love your Son so much that you sent him to the world so that he could redeem a people, transform them with the Holy Spirit, and bring us into your very life and eternal fellowship. What good news it is. We love you. Fill us with your joy and your spirit this week as we go, that we would bear fruit, all for the glory of your name and the glory of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.